It's an honor and a privilege to be here with you today and to be able to share as a part of the Antioch Network gathering. In this past year, as we've been able to engage in these online and uh, distance gatherings, it's been an absolute gift to be able to connect with one another, to hear God together, and to allow him to continue to enrich our lives, our hearts, and ultimately the ministries and works that he's calling us to. And for me personally, um, there's a little bit of trepidation in sharing with you today. Antioch Network invited me into its fold is a young, idealistic, zealous, and passionate 25-year-old who is very much wrestling with his own calling and wrestling with what the heck this thing even is that Antioch Network is inviting me into. Over the years, though, God has blessed me and has enriched my life by getting to connect with seasoned leaders and workers who carry the heart of Christ and have journeyed with him in mature and seasoned ways. And so in one sense, being able to share with you today, I still feel is a pupil sitting at the feet of masters. But at the same time, I'm also honored to be able to share with you what God has put into my own heart and trust that it will also be of enrichment and encouragement to us together. But before I do, I, I want to put this message into the context of the bigger work of what, at least from my perspective, I see God doing and at work in, in Antioch Network. As a network, we have now existed for 34 years. Our primary calling initially was to empower and connect local churches to global missions by sending teams to unreached people groups. Through this emerged an understanding that what God was really doing was connecting apostolically gifted leaders to one another. Throughout this time, though, the Lord began to also put in unique and deep deposits that have also enriched and deepened our understanding of what this work is that he's called us to. One of these things is that he's called us to apprenticeship to Jesus, to a life of formation, to sharing in his character, a recognition that the greatest need in the world today is for godly people, and to let that shape, influence, and form every work, every initiative, every new thing that God is calling to be started through Antioch Network, and to let that be a foundation through which we do it. On top of that, he began to share deeply with us in the work of reconciliation, the, the role of addressing historical wounds, of acknowledging these deep divides that keep us from experiencing the fullness of Christ's work among us and what it looks like to actually do that. Now, historically, a lot of times, these three things are often separated, missions and formation and reconciliation, and they're kept in these silos. But the reality is these three things form a comprehensive reality that shapes and influences the work that we're called to. One is Christians, but two, specifically in the work of Antioch. And so it's in this context that this message comes to you today. Um, the things that I'm sharing are an initial attempt to begin to bring these together in, in some sense of coalescing so that we no longer hold them in silos, but we see the role of reconciliation and mission. We see how these things are essentially connected one to another and so the goal of this time is to speak specifically to the role of the community in witnessing to the kingdom of God. And so with that, as we get started, I'd love to just simply pray and ask for the Lord to be with us in this time. Father, it's a gift 
to be known by you, to be loved by you, to be sent by you, to share in your heart, to share in your character, to share in your work. Father, we thank you that you have loved us. We thank you that you have called us. We thank you that you continue to work in our world to reveal your goodness, your presence, your hope, and your salvation. We thank you for the work of redemption. We thank you that you continue to call us to yourself. We thank you, Lord, that you are at work to reconcile and to restore all things. As we gather in this moment, as we sit with you, Lord, I pray that you would speak to the depths of our heart, that we would know you more fully, that we'd be share in your work in a deeper and more comprehensive way, and that you would continue to speak your purposes to us in our hearts, but also collectively to the work that you were calling us to. And Lord, it's a gift to be able to pray these things in the name of the Son, the one through whom his life and death and resurrection brings us once more into union with you and your purposes. We pray these things in your name, Christ. Amen. So to begin to speak to this idea of missions and unity, um, of being sent in reconciliation, there's a couple of things that I think we need to address and acknowledge before we can get into the fullness of what that means. One of these things is to understand that we have been shaped and influenced by a specific understanding of what it means to be sent and what it means to witness to God in the world. This context is important because this context generally emphasizes the individual and the individual in terms of their vertical context and relationship to God. And there's a number of reasons for this. Um, and as I share these reasons, I, I want to I step a little bit lightly just recognizing that, um, one, in sharing generalities and trajectories, you're not sharing the totality. Um, and so this is not meant to diminish anything. But secondly, to share these things um, could also, I think, be heard in, in the form of critique, and that is not the spirit in which I share this. It's an indebtedness to these things that will be shared, and ultimately it's an invitation to see them in a fuller light. And so when we speak to the ways in which we understand mission and how God is testified to in the world, I think we have to acknowledge also the heritage and honor it, that there have been many um, who with that view of the individual in that relationship to God who've sacrificed everything to give testimony to it. And that they're those who wear the crown of martyrdom because of that testimony. And so we honor it. We honor their witness. We honor their sacrifice. We honor their obedience. And yet at the same time, just like future generations will look at us and there'll be trajectories and there'll be blind spots that we carry that we just simply cannot see, and they'll have to evaluate the works that we're called to in that light, we also have to do with the past as well. And so in doing this, I also am speaking to a heritage to which I belong, because predominantly the way we understand witness 
and what it means to be missional in the world comes predominantly through a Protestant and more primarily speaking in an evangelical understanding because this has been the group that at least for the past 200 years has been at the forefront of shaping our understanding in the context of missions in the world today. And so I share these things as one who also partakes in them, inherited them, and has a heritage in it. But if we go back to the Reformation, and we look specifically at the understanding that Luther was developing in terms of the love of God for the individual, something unique was happening there, something that at least from a cultural standpoint that had been lost in terms of its practice and its engagement was once more being brought to light through his teachings and through his life. And as he championed the love of God for the individual and as he was personally experiencing it, the reality is that within the Reformation itself and specifically the split of the Protestant church from the Catholic church, it put the Protestant community in a unique position. The Catholic church in Christendom was the church that could claim the public and viable constitution of God at work in the world. And so for the Protestant community to hold its place and to justify its own constitution, it began in, one, understanding that individual love of God towards the unique person. It also began to emphasize the invisible constitution of what it means to belong to him. And so you start to see less of an emphasis on the church as a public reality and more an emphasis on the internal realities that allow us to belong once more to God, a spiritualization of what it means to be his followers and his people. At the same time, this unique understanding of the love of the individual opened the door for society to ultimately transform and change. And we see the rise of liberalism. And I, I speak to this not in terms of how we see it today in conservative and liberal framework, but liberalism is the idea of championing the autonomy of the individual. We begin to see societies moving from these corporate realities and responsibilities of belonging one to another where at times the individual is absolutely lost to now moving the individual to the center of that narrative and to the center of purposes and to the center of all that is going on and ultimately working towards the freedom and the rights and the autonomy of the individual. So we have the individual love of God. We have an emphasis on the invisible constitution of what it means to belong to him. And we begin to have this cultural context that is shaping and forming our understanding of what it means to walk with him that is more and more de-emphasizing our corporate belonging one to another and more emphasizing the vertical relationship of the individual to God alone. Now, in more recent time, as we do get into that liberal conservative divide, we begin to see um, within some of that liberal framework a movement to share and champion God's kingdom but often at the neglect of the historical person and work of Christ. And so you have the kingdom without the king. And in response to that, evangelicalism in some sense to make sure that the work and person of Jesus was not lost and to anchor the testimony of who he is began in some ways to also proclaim him, but apart from the kingdom. 
You see, we, we, we have these tendencies to tend to react one to another. And so now we have this emphasis of the vertical relationship to Jesus. An emphasis uniquely on the individual, and we have an emphasis on Christ detached from his kingdom. We have to understand that the modern mission movement, as we know it and as we understand it and as it's been progressing for these past centuries, has been born and indebted to these cultural trajectories. Again, this is not to say that this is the totality and the scope of all that this movement has um, been doing, but also has to understand the ways in which it's been formed and how it carries the message of the gospel to the nations. And so these things, I think, if we acknowledge it because of the role of the Protestant church and specifically the evangelical church in the missional impulse of the people of God in these past few centuries, if we understand these things, we have to acknowledge that we too have been influenced by them. So an example, when I was in my theological studies at a um, a conservative evangelical seminary that's reformed leaning, I was on a scholarship that was a mission scholarship. And I'd get this question often, and it was a question that was sincere but also baffled me. And it was this, oh, you're a missions guy. Where are you going? It was a specific paradigm of the sent missionary to a specific geographical location to share that vertical component of the message of the gospel that they're filtering that understanding of how God was calling me. And I'd get that question frequently. But that question baffled me because the reality is that the church itself is a sent community. And I'd quickly respond in those conversations and say, well, it's, it's not that I'm being called to a geographical location. If I'm a missions guy, a better question may be, how am I living? How am I treating my wife? How am I visibly manifesting the gospel in the context in which God has called me to with others? So even in an environment of deep theological thinking and reflection, that forming of what it means to witness and testify to God in the world was coming from a very specific construct. And so I don't want to minimize the nature of the individual and their call to salvation because ultimately that's where we all begin. It's the surrendered will to God, embracing him as he is, entering into the narrative to which he's called us and sharing in his life that we all enter. And so in some sense, we have to have that individual component what was brought forth in this is good. But the question is if it's the totality of what it means to witness to God's purposes. And that brings us into this, this next aspect, which is the kingdom of God is proclaimed by Christ is the central message of his work in life did not come in a vacuum. And there's two things I want to, to, to speak to and share in that. One is that the kingdom of God speaks to the total narrative of Scripture, the total narrative of God's redeeming work in the world. And secondly, the kingdom of God speaks to the comprehensiveness of salvation. Now, addressing that first one, it's interesting to me that when we see the apostles sitting with Jesus as he's ascending into heaven, having this final conversation with him, 
the question that's still impressed on their heart is, when will the kingdom be restored? You see, the kingdom was at the forefront of their thinking. It was the forefront of their thought. It was the forefront of their belonging. Even Joseph of Arimathea, the one who donated the tomb that our Savior was buried in, when you read the Gospels, it says he was looking for the kingdom. He was looking for the kingdom of God, anticipating it. And so the message of Jesus about the kingdom of God does not come to us in a vacuum, but it comes to us in the totality of the narrative of what God is doing in the world. And so when he proclaims the kingdom of God, he's bringing forward all of God's work from the past in that message. From creation to fall to the calling of Abraham to the constitution of the people of God of Israel to the giving of the law to the building of the temple to the bringing of the prophets to the captivity and ultimately to the incarnation, all these things are being brought forward in this message because the kingdom of God is a message about the fulfillment of God's working and actions in the world. But the kingdom of God also moves us into the end of all things as well. You see, the creation narrative in the end of all testimony of what God is doing is revealed in the book of Revelation. These things speak to a reality where God is ruling and reigning in an unhindered way, where his rule and reign is fully and actually realized within his creative realm. So we have the beginning and we have the telos, and we have Christ at the center who accomplishes the end and also brings it forward into the present. So we have to understand that when we're being called in Christ, we're being invited into the message of the kingdom of God, we're being invited into the totality of that narrative. And so as we emphasize the vertical dynamic of the individual historically in our witness, we also have to recognize that we're testifying to the totality of what God has been doing and is doing in the world. It's interesting that the central act of remembrance in both the Old Testament and the New is remembrance and the retelling of that story. All the festivals of Israel are retelling of the acts of God towards her. It's a retelling of how he's been at work to redeem them, to deliver them, and to call him to himself. So we see these things, Passover, the festival of booths. These things are a retelling of God's actions in the world. And then in the New Testament, where Christ takes the Passover and says, I am its fulfillment. My body broken, my blood shed. Do this in what? In remembrance of me. Retell this fuller picture in this narrative of how God has been at work in the world and do it often so that you find yourself and your meaning in that context. So there's the scope of this narrative and the kingdom of God is the theme that brings this narrative in a comprehensive way together. But the kingdom of God also speaks to the comprehensiveness of salvation. And so when we look at those bookends of scripture, creation in the fullness of redemption where we're dwelling with God in the fullness of the resurrection, there's a couple of things that are very consistent in each of these components. One, we're created to be with God. And so this is that, that vertical dynamic. 
We're created to share in his presence, to share in union and fellowship with who he is. He delights to give himself to us and to engage us in relationship and has created us in such a way that it actually constitutes what it actually means to be human, is to be with him. And so there's this vertical dynamic. But there's this other aspect of it where it says that we are given dominion and authority to rule in the midst of his creative realm. Dominion and authority that was given collectively to his image bearers, those who are called to share his likeness and to manifest it in that creative realm. That he shares in his work, but he also shares in the authority in which it is accomplished. And at the end, it says that we will be reigning with him once more. So we have this vertical component but we also have this unique call to share with him the comprehensive reality of his authority and rule which we were originally constituted in and to which we now ultimately belong once more in Christ. But there's another dynamic there that I want to really get to that speaks to the comprehensive nature of salvation in the kingdom of God. And that is its corporate reality, this horizontal component, um, as you might call it, it's interesting that in creation, there's, we have this unfallen world. There's no sin, there's no death, there's no contempt, there's no jealousy, there's no insecurity, there's no bitterness, there's none of these things. And as God creates, he keeps saying, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, and he's sharing these good things with us. And there's one component in that story and in that narrative that he declares that is not good. The only thing not good in an unfallen world is man's aloneness. You see, the king of the kingdom is a triune being. He's both one and communal, <laughs> singular and plural. It's a mystery that confounds us, but we are made in his image and in his likeness. And as Adam is sharing in this work and all the goodness of God's manifold creation as he's naming all the animals, looking for a partner that allowed him to share in that reciprocal reality that God has within himself, when he could not find it, God said, that is not good. So he created another to share in that relationship to allow for that reciprocation. And so while Adam inherently and intrinsically was made in the image of God, the image of God couldn't be fully realized him until he had Eve. You see, as image bearers of the king, to share in his likeness, to share in his character, to share in who he is, we also need one another. And so in the fall, all three of these things are broken and violated. You see man now fleeing from God and running from him. You now see the work that we've been called to filled with pain and toil and labor and sweat and fruitlessness. And then you see humanity violating that role of sharing in that reciprocal relationship. We see Adam and Eve both throw one another under the bus. And within one generation, there's so much contempt between their children that we see violence and murder for the first time in human history. And so when we look at the end, it speaks to a reality where all three of these things have been restored. 
our relationship with God and our ability to share in his union is once more restored. We are now new creation in Christ and a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem and God is restoring our purposes to his material realm to which we now belong and will belong in our resurrected bodies. But he's also bringing us back together in Christ as his body members one of another. And it's this comprehensive reality of the kingdom that begins to allow us to see the role of community and witnessing to it. See, the individual missionary can testify to the goodness and to the grace of God. They can speak to that narrative that undergirds everything that he has called them to. They can embody it by forgiving their enemy and loving those who persecute them. But the full manifestation of the kingdom can only be witnessed to in the context of others and in the context of community. You see, it's in this place that the fullness of God's reign begins to be testified to in the world. One example is understanding the nature of the fruit of God's Spirit. You see, the Spirit was at work in Christ, testifying to this reality, witnessing to these things in the middle of this narrative as he accomplishes it and brings it forward into the present and allowing him to manifest this incredible union with the Father, unhindered and unbroken. We see the Spirit testifying through mighty acts and works and deeds and Christ once more stepping into the authority that God has in this creative realm, so much so that he can tell the storm to stop and the wind cease. To speak to that which is broken and it's healed, to speak to that which is dead and to bring it back to life. And yet, he gives us that same spirit to witness to that reality and the emphasis in the New Testament, while we carry the Spirit individually just as we do the image of God, the emphasis in the New Testament is not on our individual deposit of the Spirit. It's in the Spirit within us corporately together, manifesting and testifying to the reign and rule of God in us as we surrender our inner realities and worlds to what he is doing in the resurrection and bringing us into the goodness of God's rule and reign once more. And so the fruit of the Spirit, these inner dispositions, love, peace, patience, kindness, meekness, self-control, try practicing a single fruit of the Spirit without another. You see, these are interpersonal dynamics. Love requires an object to be loved. Patience requires someone to be patient with. Meekness requires somebody to which we no longer see ourselves in terms of pride and arrogance towards. All these things are interpersonal dynamics and through them the Spirit is at work witnessing that the rule and reign of God is once more broken in in new creation as we surrender ourselves to its reality corporately and collectively. And it testifies to that full narrative of God at work within his people except now they carry the goal and the end of that story together. It's interesting that when you read the New Testament, if you try to find a specific missional strategy or evangelism method, you'll find that to be a very uh, frustrating labor because that's not its emphasis. Its emphasis is the totality of the biblical narrative and the comprehensive nature of salvation in the kingdom of God, and it uniquely is speaking to that to a people to live into together. 
See, so often, we, I think we come to scriptures and we don't always acknowledge the challenges of the questions that arises in us um, that move into these cultural constructs in which we view how God is at work. Think of the church of Corinth, a church where you have a man sleeping with his own mother-in-law. You have lawsuits and Christians treating each other horribly. You have them desecrating the table of God in such a way that some of them are actually dying and having physical punishments for their lack of integrity and virtue and honoring the sacredness of what they belong to. And yet Paul doesn't begin with any of those things. He challenges them in the fact that they're divided. Because those divisions hinder their ability to walk in the fullness of that narrative and the comprehensiveness of that salvation. And all those other things, while important, are peripheral things, and he has to begin with the essence of who they are. The fullness of that narrative, the comprehensiveness of that salvation. See, to be the people of God means to be sent and to be one. And so he starts there. It's interesting, too, that when... Paul's speaking to the church in Ephesus that he goes through the entire cosmic history of how God has been at work and how he chose them before the foundations of the world, how the Son brings them into redemption, how the Son brings them into the kingdom of light and out of the kingdom of darkness, and how the Son recreates them as one new man into this new humanity together. That he says, you know what the mystery of the gospel is? These these Gentiles are included. You see, it's this big narrative that's manifesting and revealing itself right then and there and then the first thing he admonishes them when he gets to the part of saying how do you actually live this thing out he speaks to their unity and to their oneness and to the testimony that that brings to the world it's not a mission strategy it's not an evangelism strategy it's a vision of God at work in the world that embraces the comprehensiveness of who he is and understanding the way that he's expressing his mission is through a people who embody that story and surrender to its reality And so it's in the context of community that we become assigned to the kingdom. It's here where the visible, public, and comprehensive witness to the kingdom is manifest. It's in the context of community where the reign of God is primarily made known to the world. Hence, how will they know us? Not because of our great thinking and great strategies, but by our love. It's by the interpersonal dynamics of God at work in our hearts to renew us to him, to renew us to his creative realm, and to renew us one to another. They'll know you by your love. Which is why in John 17, when he prays for us, he prays that we'd be one. Prays that we'd be in union with him, in union with one one another. Why? so that the world may know that we've been sent. So that the world may know that the Father loves us as he's loved the Son. These things are interconnected realities. And so we also have to understand that in community, it is here where the Spirit of God is given to witness to the reign of God in the context of relationship. And a sign always points to reality beyond itself, in this case, to the hidden but true reign of God brought forward in the redemptive work of Christ and now manifesting itself in the world through the people of God. 
And so community testifies and witnesses to the comprehensiveness of salvation. And our union and unity, one to another in Christ, witnesses to its reality and to God's capacity to bring that reign and rule and testify to a world that is broken and fragmented and disconnected from his purposes. It testifies once more that Christ is Lord of all and is bringing all of human history to fruition in himself, and that this reality that he inaugurated, this new humanity, this new creation that we now belong to will one day be consummated in him. And until then, it's the witnessing community that invites those who are broken and those who are fallen and those who are disconnected from God's purposes and reign. It's them who witness to its reality and give that invitation to once more belong to him through the spirit that continually testifies, not just through us individually, but through us collectively. I know in our fragmented and broken world, there's a lot that many Christians are doing that do not witness to this reality. We witness to divisions. We witness to brokenness. We witness to our own silos. And that if these things are true, I cannot divorce myself from those who are witnessing, even if I disagree with how they're witnessing. You see, it's as we embrace our belonging one to another that we testify to the reconciling love of God in Christ. It's a sober reality. We belong one to another. We are sent. We are one. And the kingdom of God is testified to us that whether we want it to be or not. It's either testified too well or it's testified too poorly. But it will always be testified through the people of God in the world as his spirit is at work within them. And so my hope and my desire is that we reclaim the role and the nature of community in the church as a sign of the kingdom. That we once more find our belonging one to another that we learn that how we treat each other is a part of our witness to the world that God is sitting on his throne inviting us into a realm in which all things are unhindered in terms of their union with him and their union with one another and their union with his purposes for them. And so it's with that that come back to where we started to prayer. Let's pray for this. Let's work towards it. We must check our own hearts and repent from the ways in which we have failed to recognize how God is at work within us, the ways in which we've mistreated, harmed, and held in contempt those who also belong to him. And as we do that, his witness in and through us will manifest in new and fuller ways. There will be others who share in this fold with us because he's empowered us and calls us to share in his work, to witness to, and to testify to his kingdom. So Lord, we come humbly before you. The grace and mercy which with, you, which with which you carry us astounds my heart. Father, help us to see in greater ways the fullness of what you have done and what you are doing. Help us to remember once more who you are and how you've been at work in the world. Help us to worship you in the fullness of your light and life. 
And as we do, Lord, continue to restore us one to another that the world might know that the Father has sent you and you sent us. That the world might know that you love them even as you have loved us. And so, Lord, as we share in the fullness of your salvation, as we share in the fullness of your kingdom, as your spirit is at work within us, may you continue to empower us to testify and to, the, and to witness to who you are and what you're doing. We pray this in your name, Christ. Amen.